You're listening to a podcast from the Media Motel. Coming up this week in episode 442, the quiz of infinite enormity, Rupert Murdoch's Times radio station, and what's the deal with French and Saunders? That's all coming up after Ringo Starr, and it don't come easy. like a mini Beatles uh, George Harrison on guitars Klaus Vorman on bass Badfinger on backing vocals his first proper single release after the breakup of the Beatles number four in both the UK and America from spring of 1971 Ringo Starr and it don't come easy yeah like you say sort of a, a Beatles of people who are missing the Beatles really I quite like that welcome to the podcast from the Parish Council it's episode 442 I'm Terence Stackham and let's just double check that Russian interference hasn't got in the way of her being here today it's Juliet Harris greetings comrades hello yes I'm I'm uh, I am here fortunately I've not been uh, um, incarcerated in a basement in Moscow or have my hat photoshopped or any other things I am here <laughs> 
Now to the overwhelming, the overwhelming excitement of our opening feature. <laughs> do try to stay calm, listeners. Do yeah, really do. Just, just take a deep breath because it's the quiz of extraordinary bigness. Um, five tiny snippets of songs on a theme where the five elements of the theme must be identified, and there's five bonus points for identifying each artist. And now let me just see who the contestants are this week. I'll just check on my cards here. Um, ah, yes, the, this week it's um, the contestants. So you, the listener, and you, the Juliet Harris. Hello, yes, that's me, contestant B, yes. <laughs> last week we, <laughs> last week we had numbers related to the Beatles. Um, now, it's similar this week, Jules. It's numbers without involving any Beatles. Oh, well, fair enough. That's yeah. a- but that's a sort of a, a, a non-conflaboration of the two. I couldn't have put it better. So it's five um, numbers, um, five clips rather, in 30 seconds. Mm, I look forward to this. I got my first real six string, boy, at the five and done. Uh-huh, it was the man friends. Sorry, carry on. That's all I was going to say, yeah. Yes, that's something of great import. Now, Juliet Loosely, I'm fairly confident that you're going to do quite well here um, with your extensive music knowledge. Um, but uh, let's see, what, what, what was the first uh, first number and who was the, a bonus for if you get the artist? Well, so it was it was some sort of live version by the sound of it or acoustic version or perhaps some even ungodly combination of both. But anyway, it was Brian Adams and Summer of 69. Oh, you didn't get foxed by that uh, the, the slightly odd version 69 it is Indeed. Um, number two i nearly got foxed by this actually but i think i've got what it is now is it the rolling stones and 19th nervous breakdown yes yeah, way before your era so you did pretty well getting that one that was the one i thought might just throw you off because mm. as i say like, <laughs> uh, how many years before you were bought? Little, 20 years little, before little you were it's unusual and and unfortunately myself and and my better half are on opposite sides of the great beatles rolling stones divorce yes, but uh, as a result of which that has increased my familiarity with the rolling stones so number three my other half for that and uh, number three uh two four six eight motorway by yes. the band Six out of six so far, up to your normal Radio 2 style standard. Um, <laughs> Let's see if I can see get two, four, six, eight on the next one. Do you know what I nearly always do when we're doing this? I, I nearly always say, well, did you get to uh, say what the answer is before asking you what it is? <laughs> I, I had that on the tip of my tongue. I nearly said, did you get, mm, and then I'll leave it to you, number four. Um, yeah, Manfred Mann. I have seen the Manfred, which is basically Manfred Mann without the chat that was actually called Manfred Mann, yeah. uh, four times. Um, I'm not convinced I'll see them a fifth time because it is. I enjoy them, but it is essentially the you, same show. It depends, yeah, you can rinse things out, yeah, can't you, really? It depends upon the calibre on the, of the guest supporting artists. I don't think they'd top having jo- Georgie Fame as their supporting artist from last no. time. So may not be seeing them anymore. But anyway, that was 54321. Excellent. And... Uh, Dum, 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 dum. 
Uh, still holding out for that Millet's endorsement deal, I assume. These are the Proclaimers and uh, 500 miles. Brilliant. 10 out of 10. Um, very much. Yeah. Now, what if I again set you, the listener, and you, the Juliet? Now, I'll have to get my you know what's coming. So, yeah. Yes. To add all these numbers together. Now, 2468 individual numbers. So, not 2468. 2 yeah. and 4. Okay. 54321 individual 5 plus 3 plus 3 2 plus 1, not 554,321. Um, add them up, and I'll give you the answer at the end of the podcast. A little bonus. Bit this of work. Exciting. I can put my uh, well. I think I have my guess, but I'll I'll, I'll leave it to the end. Of the leave it to the end for uh, yeah. sake. What's the matter with you? Getting, <laughs> getting overwhelmed there. <laughs> <laughs> to overload you with information what what is a weekly exchange of information i'm I'm sorry that us having a conversation has turned out to be a revelation to you it it really does add to the difficulty of the thing here's me trying to queue up five four three two one and whatever and there's you trying to speak to me i mean i know it's incredibly and i'm terribly sorry actually hearing that hearing that slagging me off for 30 seconds that'd be great Hearing that snippet of 54321 there, it took me right back because it was the opening theme to the wonderful music show Ready, Steady, Go. Indeed, and and when they they begin their their show, they do actually start with a bit of archive footage on a video screen. I have seen them start with a bit of archive footage on on a video screen, and and they do do the voiceover introduction to Ready, Steady, Go, and then burst into the song, and that is the way that they start their shows. What a great show that was. I was only seven or eight, but mm. I loved everything about it. They used to say, the weekend starts here. And because it, it, it used to go out at tea time on a Friday. And boom, there was Kathy McGowan mm. introducing oh, the Beatles, the Who, the Hollies, the Supremes, Marvin Gaye, the Beach Boys. It was incredible. Coming next, BBC journalists being poached by Rupert Murdoch's new venture. Uh, that's right after this lovely track chosen by Juliet. It's Martina Topley Bird.
I had uh, the great pleasure, or pleasure slash non-pleasure, it was a non-pleasure that I managed to turn into a pleasure of being uh, stuck in ridiculous traffic um, during the week on my journey, my, my usual journey from Bexhill to uh, to Hastings each day, and uh, and I got stuck in a, in a traffic jam at both ends of this particularly long road. They, the, the usual thing, it gets to February, and every local authority is uh, putting roadworks everywhere in a desperate attempt to spend the rest of their budget during that financial year so this is my theory anyway so uh, so I was jammed in traffic and I decided that I hadn't heard this album in a very long time and I decided that for some I, I can't I don't even think there was a reason I just decided that I would give it another go and just listen to it and it was uh, it was a pleasure to be sat in traffic frankly listening to this which is words I never thought I'd say about being stuck in traffic but anyway um from the album Quixotic which was her debut um and was uh, shortlisted for the 2003 Mercury music prize this is martina topley bird um she uh, um, includes collaboration with tricky who she collaborated with um it's got some fantastic songs on it including um including a, including a cover of a tricky tune i think at one point it's it's extremely good and i would recommend this to anybody frankly she collaborated with Tricky in many different ways. It has to be said, personally and uh, professionally. Yes, I wasn't going to. I wasn't going to draw attention to that. <laughs> no, it's a fan, it's a genuinely fantastic record. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a great choice. Um, she's got such a, a, a lovely voice. Um, gorgeous. It's interesting, isn't it? You quite rightly said um, that the album title is uh, Quixotic. And yet we, we say Don Quixote. We say Quixote, but it's we say Quixotic. Weird, isn't it? Yes. I, I don't know why that is. I thought it was, it's not even me not being able to speak properly, which it usually mm. is when it's these things. Let's, uh, let's face it. Those in the UK who seek new style radio have nothing like the choices available in in America, where the number of radio stations offering talk and news is it's bewildering. Um, in the UK, if you don't enjoy the sound of the long running Today programme on Radio 4, cu- currently trying with some dis- 
aspiration to youthify itself. Um, your alternatives are LBC, where shouty people phone in to shouty presenters, or the aptly named talk radio, where inarticulate shouty people phone in to shouty presenters. <laughs> and then, then there's BBC Five Live, which is like a tabloid form of Radio 4. Now, in an age of, of snippets of news on social media and gossipy bits on the hugely popular Mail Online, it feels like it, it feels like an era of decline for news radio. But wait, over the hill, here comes Rupert Murdoch's News UK to announce they are launching Times Radio, offering continuous news and current affairs coverage. Well, they're certainly appearing to give it a serious shot. They've poached John Pienaar, mm. deputy political editor of BBC News, for a reported salary of a quarter of a million quid a year. Times Radio, Jules, does it have any future or is it an idea that's really run out of time? Well, it's interesting. I, I, that's an interesting integrity. I hadn't really thought of that. Um, it, it, as a sort of a, a, an oddly relevant uh, interjection to this, there is somewhere actually where where a sort of chat takes place in quite an interesting way. Is it your sitting room? Uh, well, I mean, occasion. I mean, not that often. I have to be honest. But but yeah, um, occasionally. But um, we were on the way back from Kent yesterday, um, from Mar- traveling from Margate to Hastings, and so we did the usual fight of trying to find a uh, a station that we could all listen to. Um, and we happened upon BBC Radio Kent, um, John oh. Warnett's afternoon show, the drive mm-hmm. show, and he was doing a radio phoning, and usually the the idea of people phoning into a radio phoning just the words we're having a phoning makes me turn the radio off never mind (laughs) but but because I was literally a captive audience in this car um I I listened to it and it was about whether or not the 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 Labour Party what was the future for the Labour Party basically should they go in a more Blairite direction should they go in a more socialist direction what was their future now we're asking for people to call in who were who had voted Labour in the past they were quite clear on this which is what made it so entertaining John the presenter who was excellent we liked John very much um um, asked people to ring in what would persuade you to vote Labour and this bloke rang in and <laughs> John asked him after a you know after two minutes of kind of semi-ranting have mm. you uh, had you know have you voted Labour and this bloke said never oh, wait, <laughs> when I was John I'd have pulled the plug gone to the record and had a massive shout at my producer for having actually let this person on air but anyway John let dangled him on a rope for a little bit longer and then said do you think they'd um do you think they get her do you think they'd get more votes if they had someone like Tony Blair and the bloke went uh, yeah, and the guy said, but you didn't vote for him when he was in. You didn't vote Labour when Tony Blair was leading. So why do you think that someone leading them would, would, <laughs> would get them in again? And this bloke said, oh, I didn't I didn't vote Labour. You know, I was interested in what was going on in my own life. And you just think, oh, for goodness sake. But but having said that, it was a very entertaining listen because John Warnett of the BBC did not let this bloke get away with his nonsense. He questioned it. And I think that's, that's why we have various unedifying uh, incidents on programmes like Question Time, the BBC TV Politics Current Affairs program where it gets so frustrating where we had a woman on this week who was spouting what were very clearly racist views I think I can be I can be clear on this that when you analyze what her comments were the basis was very clearly people's race and her views were allowed to go completely unchallenged it would seem by but by, by the chair and so in a way I think we do need arenas in which people's views can be robustly challenged I enjoy LBC actually sometimes it is very shouty occasionally mm. 
do I do quite like that. Um, I don't think necessarily it's a dead format. I think that the LBC seems to be more popular than ever, particularly the the, the James O'Brien that that uh, Natalie Jumper chap uh, puts up <laughs> these uh, these kind of videos of him of him talking, and, and and all of the LBC stars are increased by using video footage that that is then sort of shared on social media. So that's an example, I think, of radio not necessarily being a dead format, but radio will survive if it manages to modernise and adapt and, and, and work with other mediums. So I think I don't I think there's a place for it. I do have deep deep suspicions of of times radio and i speak as someone that is a times subscriber who does very much enjoy the times red box podcast hosted by matt chorley i think that i think it's superb that's really really good and they have three guests on a week usually unless they have specials and it, it's it's they're mostly times journalists and it is always very interesting analysis but that is the radio of that is the podcast of one paper i don't i don't treat that or view that as a um as a news source, I see that as an opinion source. So firstly, I'm, I'm troubled that a newspaper that does have a particular political view, there's that unusually for, for, for newspapers, there does seem to be a range of views within the Times, which I do admire the Times for, actually. But I I, I think it's dangerous to, to, uh, to, to confuse sources of opinion that is ultimately owned by one person with, with the production of unbiased news. I find that slightly dangerous. Dangerous. Also, the idea that that Rupert Murdoch, the owner of the Times, has this history of continually trying to monopolise the media and continually being kind of pushed back as a result. And now, you know, the idea that that Murdoch very much wants to go, his newspapers supported, you know, seem to broadly support uh, the government of the day that we have at the moment, the Conservatives, who are now being increasingly open of their opposition to the BBC. Um, I, I I worry, and I and you know. I know we, we quite frequently have disagreements about mm. the on this podcast. Mm. I still maintain, I still stick to my closing gambit every single time, which is we will miss public broadcasting when it has gone. And and I I um you know I I am rather discombobulated by the fact that that you know literally Rupert Murdoch can do what he wants. I mean you know they can drop salaries on people that the BBC can't, frankly, and it'll be and it'll be an interesting test of and I am going to use this word people's integrity that work at the BBC journalist integrity the journalists that pay lip service to how important it is to, you know to public broadcasting and ethics and 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 uh, sort of impartiality in journalism and that sort of thing be interesting to see how many of those journalists stay true to that and how many are tempted by a massive payday at the end of their careers i'd be very i would be very interested to see that i i I, it's not that i don't think there's a place for the times i'm just a little bit suspicious as to what it thinks its place is and if its place is supplanting the bbc i don't think that is its place one of the problems facing any prospective full-time news and current affairs station is that they, these sort of shows or stations really only work for their intended purpose when there is a major news story or a national or international crisis. Mm. And even with what broadcasters feel is nationally important, many, I guess probably most people only want a sort of executive summary, I think, mm. um, 
Uh, not not the full 10 course feast, as it were. And I think this was proven with Brexit and in recent years, a couple of general elections where, you know, it was you know, there was that sort of jokey interview um, with a, a lady who said, oh, no, not again. And I think I think people with with Brexit, people just wanted it over with in the end, whatever their views. And this means, I think, that only a core listenership of fanatics and those in the Westminster bubble are left. And if Times Radio really is simply going to be a rolling news and current affairs cycle, the easiest version of this to run is 15 or 30 minute segments repeated and updated through the day. Yeah. But if, though, alluding to what you said, they put in huge investment probably unlikely but if they do and produce quality general programs that rival radio four at its best it might have some impact but it won't make any money and as we're in 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 a fast moving age of media fragmentation i think the most likely outcome is that it will be a very large white elephant a sort of murdoch plaything It'll be interesting, yeah. And then when once it becomes a plaything, I then worry as it's to mm. as, as to its intentions. Yeah, I, I I don't disagree with you. I, it's it's interesting, isn't it? How rolling news, in a way. I, I again, I find that you know, I I feel we're we're entering into a potentially very dark and worrying part of as a part of our history. And and I because there seems to be parallels from other worrying parts of our histories. And and and. and what I can see is that lots of people have switched off from the news. Intelligent people that I know have switched off from the news because they find it too depressing and they find it too repetitive as well. And I think that's what people fail to grasp about Brexit. And this is this will be the sort of payoff in the end. The same pe- people that go, oh, I'm sick of Brexit, I want it done. They have been sold a lie that Brexit is is you know a a decision a box upon which a lid can be shut rather than an ongoing unpacking and unraveling of you know that will take a decade or so. I was told this by somebody who works in and around Parliament two days before we had the vote, and they, who said to me whilst we were sat in the car, "You do realise that if we." If we do vote to come out, this is going to consume the next decade of political and public life. And and it was absolutely spot on, I think. And as a, as a result, I think rolling news plays a plays a, a I was going to say a role, haha, a feature mm-hmm. in that, in that people find it too repetitive. They're so sick of it. I, I mean, there is a, a humorous side to it. I will never forget that that clipping outnumbered uh, the, the BBC sort of comedy about a, a family with kids where the grandfather is so confused by rolling news that they come in and granddad says there have been three train crashes in the last 25 minutes all of them in kent and doesn't quite sort of grasp what rolling news means yeah. and i think that that then means that people switch off and the the historical parallel that i find so worrying is that of course once people switch off and once people stop paying attention that then means that decision makers become unscrutinized and i find that very worrying now perhaps another and, you know, if the Times is a new radio and news analysis station, you know, another source of scrutiny might not be a bad thing as long as that source of scrutiny is an honest broker. And for all that the BBC makes mistakes, the fact that both sides have criticised the BBC for, you know, as as old as time saying that it is biased against them. If it's biased against everybody, then I, I'm t- inclined to think that it, it, it's, you know, it biased against nobody. I'm not saying there aren't errors in its output. I'm not saying it wasn't badly exposed by the last general election campaign. But I am more inclined still to think, and I know we'll disagree on this, but I still think that a public broadcaster 
is more inclined to be an honest broker than a news source that is owned by one person. And that, I worry that it might end up being our equivalent of also Rupert Murdoch's Fox in the States. You know, that confusing thing about uh, rolling news coming around every 15 minutes. I think I've told this uh, short anecdote before, but it's be- worth bearing uh, repeat again. Um, my, my father was a, a big fanatic of watching Sky Sports News. He used to <laughs> love watching that. And that runs on 15 minute uh, rollovers. And uh, my my mother used to wander in and out of the room. And one day um, she turned to my father and said, that Frank Lampard's in the news a lot, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> because every time she walked in the room, they were rerunning the same clip of Frank Lampard um, being interviewed oh, about playing for England. I was say, yeah, you never hear anything about anybody else, do you? He's very talented, that Frank Lampard. <laughs> Coming up next, what's the deal with French and Saunders and absolutely fabulous? Mm. That's right after Marshall Crenshaw. The way you smile, even when it's closing in around you Girl, you know that that's one thing I ought to learn how to do Won't you hear my plea? Come by and see me Cause every time you smile You make my world A fantastic planet of love What new battle Will this day bring Just this morning I felt like Fantastic planet of love Right now I feel it I feel something Closing in around me It's in the headlines Of the tabloids And I heard about it on TV Come see about me Can't wait to be Hanging around with the one Who makes my world A fantastic planet of love planet of
a terrific songwriter, a great singer and guitarist, uh, widely respected. He's been recording since the early 1980s, but inexplicably, he's never had any chart success at all. This was from a splendid album, Life's Too Short, from 1991, Marshall Crenshaw and Fantastic Planet of Love. That was great. And I have virtually no familiarity with him at all. I keep confusing him with Otis Lee Crenshaw, which is a rich, rich horse fictional bluesman. But yeah, oh. I'm, uh, I'm quite a quite a quite a fan of his all of a sudden. I really enjoyed that. I thought it was great. Do you remember a song that was a hit um, for a lad called Owen Paul? You're my favourite waste of time. Yes, I do. It was it was one of those, un, you know, sort of love songs that are actually quite a slight, aren't they? Uh, yeah, that, that was written by Marshall Crenshaw Isn't as well. It? So he's, he's written hits for other people. Absolutely. So in terms of uh, in terms of uh, romantic love songs that are actually quite insulting, that's <laughs> my favourite waste of time. Surely right up there with you say it best when you say nothing. Say nothing at, at all. <laughs> I, I was going to say, I don't find those to be particularly... Uh, no. Persuasive decorations of love, I must admit. In the mid-1980s, comedy in Great Britain saw a sort of revolution similar to that provoked by punk in music a decade earlier. There were suddenly a number of openings for younger, at the time, styled as alternative comedians. Alternatives, rather, in inverted commas there, as most of them ended up working in mainstream television, radio, film and theatre. Two of the most enduring comedians uh, from that background have worked as a double act and individually with great success. Uh, Jules, I think you're quite the devotee of French and Saunders. Well, yes, I'm quite I'm quite a big fan. Um, I didn't realise I was a particularly big fan. And um, we now treat Christmas presents to me as my own personal budget. I'm given my Christmas budget of how much the figure is. And then it is up to me as to what it is spent on, which I rather like, actually, because it cuts down the waste of Christmas. And, and, and it, it, you know, I don't mind the non-surprise element. And it means that we all get something we can appreciate and enjoy. And when I had to think about what, what I wanted to spend the, the remaining money on this Christmas night, I thought, oh, what we you know? I quite like something to watch, and actually, I'd like to, an old—I uh, can't believe I'm saying this is old school, frankly—but a DVD box set rather than a sort of Netflixy thing. I thought, what well, you know, what, what something quite substantial that I would really like to have, and it surprised me more than anyone else that the thing that I, the conclusion I came to was French and Saunders, and um, and so I got six seasons of French and Saunders on, or six series, as those of us who are still clinging to our outdated, uh, outdated Anglo language want to call it. Um, we we got six seasons um none of the specials unfortunately because they did do a lot of specials in their later years it's they they stopped regularly doing series really it's noticeable that that series five was in 1996 and then then the sixth series is in 2003 so there was there was quite a gap and in, in them regularly producing and we were watching this me and my, my partner the other evening and I I just couldn't believe how good it was, really. I, I, I asked for it thinking that we would find it funny because I did remember them being funny, but we watched um, half of the fifth series from 1996 and we were incredibly impressed by the production values. It clearly had a lot of money that was being spent on it, but just how good they were, how good actresses they are, how good they are at adopting their their personas. Jennifer Saunders' rather kind of waspish, kind of, um, kind of sort of ill-tempered, person and dawn french who's someone that seems to be confused by the entire world and i think we we are we are dawn french i think in this program she is leading us through it um pitch perfect satires of things and the thing that we particularly admired about it and particularly the episode that we saw which is the 96 series french and saunders were 
really big stars at this point and they really were on primetime BBC One. We, were, we, we, we couldn't quite remember if this series would have gone out at nine o'clock or, or 10.35, but we, we knew that it certainly went out post-Watershed, but in prime time. So you'd think, thinking about the sort of things we see on prime time now, you know, Mrs. Brown's Boys is the big comedy hit. We perhaps uh, see some, um, you know, sort of more nuanced and layered comedies that are on BBC Two. Mum was a surprise hit recently. That's excellent. Uh, Detectorist on BBC Four. So there is there is a range of comedy. When it but when it comes to the prime time stuff, that tends to be more broad and 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 the the, the things that have perhaps a little bit more depth to them. To put it politely, we see on we see on BBC Two and BBC Four and and, and online on BBC Three and perhaps the more sort of satellite type channels. We didn't want to be people who say, oh, nothing's ever as good as it was. I hate this kind of pointless nostalgia on things. I want things to keep being good. I want, and you know, if things are good and I don't understand them, the problem is me. The problem is not things, you know, things being different, if you see what I mean. And we didn't want to say, oh, well, of course, you know, this would never happen now. But I find it hard to believe that the primetime big hitter programme on BBC One would dedicate nine of its 27 minutes to a pitch perfect subtitled dubbed into Italian parody of Fellini films. I find that really difficult to believe that would happen now. And it, it was fantastic. It's apps. I mean, I would recommend watching this on YouTube. I just couldn't believe that they got away with that. And I, and it is made with such care and such detail. And I was talking about this with a friend of mine who's roughly the same age. And this series would have gone out when we were about 12, we worked out. And we remembered watching it at the time. And my friend said that Fellini stuff would have gone completely over my head. And I said, I don't remember it. I remembered some of what we watched. There was a long sketch that the punchline basically was that Linda Laplante had written for everybody in the sketch apart from French and Saunders. So it was kind of set in a dingy warehouse and, and had, you know, it was, made, it was called The Job. And it was a very good parody of Linda Laplante. Uh, Linda Laplante dramas and Linda Laplante was in it to be fair and we were struck by how the big stars of the day everybody was in it Dusty Springfield makes a makes a three minute appearance much to our slight bemusement but we uh, I was talking about with my friend and she said oh yeah come to think of it I do remember being baffled by an Il Postino Pat sketch now and I, I, I just we really admired how inventive it was how edgy it was how it was trying to do something a bit different in amongst the Knowles House Party parodies and the Brave parodies and it was doing something that was it was still in its way quite alternative it might not be the tunnel club or you know women in leggings banging on about their periods which i do remember alternative comedy to be like from women or you know that sort of thing or you know ben elton or stuff like that but i do feel that putting a putting nine minutes worth of fellini sketch onto bbc one prime time i don't think uh, french and saunders are always given their given their due for just how inventive they were really I appreciate that I may be seen as being rather petty with this issue. Of course not. No, you're supposed to say no, you. I was going to say that I find this implausible. It's entirely yeah, yeah. unlike you, Terence. Is that I've, better? Yeah. I've long hated laughter tracks on TV shows. I worked on yeah, a, yeah. A, a particular TV show in the 80s, contemporary with uh, this, and I campaigned vigorously for the laughter track to be dumped. I hate them. Um, yeah, it jars right, with me. Right, uh, 
completely understand that. Yeah. Yeah. It's not there. Therefore, of course, I'm sure for instance, but French and Saunders use of laughter tracks. So I've really it, a bit painful. And it's interesting that you say that actually, sorry to come back on you slightly mm. on this, but this is a, this is sort of making my point a little bit of how inventive I think French and Saunders were that the first episode of this series, and I'm sorry if I'm spoiling, but um, the, the job ends with Helen Mirren asking if French and Saunders can write her something to be a comedy and the last sketch of the show which is almost as the credits roll is a sort of a very tired style mum and daughter in a kitchen and it's Helen Mirren in a bad wig and Julia Sawaha and 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 the sketch starts off just being very tired and it starts off Helen Mirren becomes increasingly disconcerted that she gets distracted by one woman laughing very loudly in the in in the in the laughter and Mm. then that she's not getting any laughs and of course the the ultimate sort of pullback is that the laughter track is being operated by the the, the studio audience is not a studio audience it is being operated as a laughter track being operated by dawn french who's Mm. been paid by jennifer saunders to make helen mirren look bad so to be fair they do even manage to parody the use of a laughter track at one point so it was just a little pushback on that but i i don't disagree with you it is irritating on the other hand, you, you pointed me um, during the week towards some of their more sophisticated sketches, including that pastiche of Fellini, which was extraordinary and just brilliant. And it, it does seem astonishing that this was on mainstream TV. So I don't have criticism of French and Saunders. It was just that I don't I, watching them at the, the time. My memory was that many of their skits felt a bit weak to me. Uh, sometimes it felt like a couple of people showing off rather mm. than performing comedy. But I acknowledge I'm probably in a minority of one there with your your other love absolutely fabulous i'm i'm again acknowledged being in a minority of one i'm not as big a fan of that as i am of Saunders before we say that but do oh, okay. so just just go back to, to your point that you were making about um about the the idea that that you you thought that some of it was weak I think the biggest criticism I could even make of French and Saunders is that the quality control mm. isn't always that consistent absolutely my, my friend I was talking to about this said her memory was that there would be one spectacularly great series followed by one slightly duff series and interestingly with the series we were watching I think was fantastic and we really enjoyed it when I looked on the sort of back of the DVD the next the series it was in that was sort of eight years in the making that and I remember it now the whole series was based around them trying to make a program so it was a sort of a play within a play and I think that that I remember that not being as good and it being a little bit too self-referential it was like they'd kind of almost fallen in love with their their own publicity and kind of taking it taking it too far and we were saying that the problem is is that is that the uh, I think the biggest problem, and I completely agree with you on this, the biggest issue with French and Saunders was the white room stuff, which mm. was the sketch between the two of them that would take place everywhere, a conversation in a white room where someone would be dressed up as someone else. Mm. And that was incredibly inconsistent. It would either be brilliant or it would be awful. And actually, I think that the, 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 the reason why I think French and Saunders aren't necessarily as venerated critically as they should be is like you say for every amazing people think of French and Saunders because they very much fronted as themselves when people think of that they might think of the white room sketches that are a bit hit and miss before they think of nine minutes of pitch perfect Fellini <laughs> well exactly and I, I mean I mean this is it exactly it, that the you know the, the by the way, the Fellini sketches uh, sketch is uh, is on YouTube, so if you want yeah. to see that, it's oh, easy to find. Um, and that's exactly the point: is that for 
every sort of 10 minutes or five minutes like that, there would be, it felt sometimes like 20 minutes of filler. And I put this down to the problem that's been in, uh, it happens in the music business as well, and it happens here, whereas the stars become so big that mm -hmm. no producer or, or, or director or TV executive is able to say hold it right there you yeah. know that's not good enough it's not going out and we see this you know right throughout entertainment um and i was just going to say with absolutely fabulous yeah i again minority of one perhaps but i felt it was a one sketch gag drawn out over several yeah. series taking the pee out of lynn franks and her rather gushing flamboyant personality mm -hmm. i didn't ever really get it but i realize that's more a reflection on me and my sense of humor than dissing ab fab as a show absolutely and the funny thing you say you felt it was one sketch mm. it was you, you mm. I, I don't know if you know this but there what it, it was it came out of a sketch that french and saunders did on their show yeah, i didn't know that yeah as Dawn French in the Safi daughter Julia Sawalha role mm. sat at a desk doing her homework in glasses in her bedroom whilst Jennifer Saunders has this incredible fashionista style kind of you know tries to be a cool mum and then has this incredible tantrum that ends in her sort of throwing herself on the bed and it is funny of all of their sketches it isn't the one that I necessarily would have picked as the runner that was going to produce several series and I think like you say my, I, I liked Absolutely Fabulous a lot at first, but I think you've absolutely hit the nail on the head when you said that it became that certain stars become too big for people to say no to. And I think, again, it really suffered from quality control, really did. And it's it, interesting this because I believe that Dawn, uh, the, sorry, Jennifer Saunders wrote. Did she write Absolutely Fabulous? Was that her that wrote it? I think it, I get the impression it was. Whereas Dawn French's alternative vehicle, and, and there was a little bit. There's echoes of the 70s in this, in that stars that are very successful in a group are then given their own vehicles, aren't they? So, mm -hmm. so the same thing happened with uh, the Good Life, not the Good Life. Um, yeah, the Good Life. They all, all of those four stars got a vehicle that was some that you know was then then another pro program like to the man of born and ever decreasing circles and they all grew out each star was rewarded with their own series for the success of that and actually interestingly dawn french's reward the vicar of dibley which mm. went off to be an immensely successful series and also kept the quality control really high it's still really fun it's still really funny i think they repeated one of them at christmas and it was great she was not, in my understanding, as involved in writing that. I could be wrong on this, but I believe that she wasn't. And maybe Dawn French is sharper at recognising, when I say her own limitations, that sounds mean on Jennifer Saunders, and I don't mean it to at all, but maybe Dawn French sort of realises the need for someone else to exert some quality control. I don't know. But the first couple of series of Absolutely Fabulous are really funny. But I certainly found, as the series went on, like you say, it was a joke that was stretched too far, and the material became thinner. So the laughs were more spaced out and it became the storylines became very I mean, the whole thing was always a little bit unbelievable, but the storylines kind of became slightly more bizarre, particularly Safi as well, who was always the one that was meant to have her feet on the ground. And like you say, it's a shame, really, that, that stuff is and like you say, in all industries, stuff is allowed to go on for too long to ever decreasing return. Really. Yeah, I mean, Jennifer Saunders, yes, did indeed. I think she was the only writer and absolutely fabulous. And I think this this. um 
uh, this business of people never being um, reined in by either family, friends, or or professional uh, you know producers and so on was exemplified. Um, I think I don't mean to be picking on Jennifer Saunders, but mm-hmm. you know she then was um, if you, I was going to say allowed that's the wrong word, but she went on to do that absolutely disastrous Spice Girls musical in the West End, which yes. anybody could have seen you know at, at preview stage and said, oh my God, this is awful let's pull it now but again because nobody is is able to say to really big stars whoa hold it right there that went on to you know become an absolute theatrical disaster like you say if someone had seen it early on surely Mm -hmm. they would know wouldn't they absolutely but you know it's it's that syndrome of when you become so big there's nobody there just to pull on the reins sometimes absolutely thank you very much for listening this week great to have you there as always hello yes thank you <laughs> and thanks also to hilly and rona for their contributions um before we go the great number challenge what was the total from our big quiz today jules well, and I always worry about this. Yes, I think you should. Horribly wrong, but um, I make the total to be 623. 623. Once again, you score 11 out of 10. Um, I, I, I will go back to my residence in Countdown Dictionary Corner now, but yes, indeed. I do, but there is a little bit of the countdown about this format, and I, I don't oppose that. I think it's all right. And to close, um, Jules, hey, you karate boogaloo. Yeah, indeed. You are very taken with the name I of this outfit, name. which I'm enjoy I'm enjoying very much. This was again, you know, it it perhaps is a bit creepy the extent to which our devices are listening to and watching and targeting us. Mm. But this was promoted into my Facebook feed, and I was glad to see it because sort of lounge jazz covers of craftwork tunes is very much something that I would enjoy, and I have enjoyed this very much. It's a uh, it's they're called Karate Boogaloo. It comes from KB mixtape number two, I believe it's called and it's got all sorts of different uh, different covers on it it's not just craft work covers um you might remember we played bam bam by sister nancy a few weeks ago i picked that and it's got a version of that on the album as well which is quite interesting but i'm just particularly taken by this because i think it's such a great recasting of what is already a brilliant song just putting a new slightly new spin on it not not radically different but enough to make it interesting uh, this is uh, terence's new favorite karate boogaloo <laughs> and this is tour de france
listening to a parish council production <laughs> 